Welcome, I'm your host, Greg McEwen. I'm the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Effortless and Essentialism. And I'm here with you on this journey to learn how to understand each other. Have you ever felt seriously stuck in a relationship where the harder you tried, the worse it got? Today, I am thrilled to have one of the wisest people I have ever had the fortune of knowing to be joining us, Professor C. Terry Warner. His book, Bonds That Make Us Free, changed my life more than once. I return to it regularly. This is part one of two. Warner shares the story behind one of the most startling discoveries in psychology over the last 50 years. By the end of this episode, you will understand what keeps you trapped in the most frustrating relationships of your life, work or at home. Let's begin. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And remember not to take this journey alone. Teach the ideas in this podcast to someone else within the next one or two days. I don't know if you're going to be able to solve this conundrum for me, but when we spoke the first time, it's about a month ago, 
I mentioned to you conflict resolution and my interest in it, and you said this. You said, well, I think conflict resolution needs you more than you need it. And you didn't explain that because you didn't have time in that moment. But I asked you about it and you said, well, it's not about this, it's about that. But, but that's as far as you went, and, and I'm st- I, that left me hanging as to what you, what you meant by that. I think I may have said something about the dangers of models. If you are focusing on people understanding one another, that's going to be a lot more fruitful than somebody developing some interventional or therapeutic modality Uh, for intervention where the specialist works on the people or gives the people the secret formula or gives prescribes a course because it never quite fits and uh in fact it's the wrong direction i i i think the idea of enlightening people so they understand one another better and can empathize deeply with the other person's situation is uh, without any further endeavor fitting. That is, it's um, absolutely appropriate and connects with the situation as it exists rather than than a a generic model that that never quite fits and always locates the responsibility in the wrong place. I think that my my views grow out of the intellectual property that I have bequeathed to Arbinger, the Arbinger Institute, and uh, it's very productive and enables people to to uh, take responsibility for their own situation, their own relationships, and to heal them. And I think it's the only only possible way. I got a lot of reasons for that. I'm going to be giving a talk in the fall about it. Basically, you're saying to teach anyone any model where they are to understand this model, and therefore, because of now understanding it, they will then be able to interact with people better. Yeah, well, uh, typically, they go to a place like George, George Mason University and they... Uh, get armed with their credentials and uh, the tricks of the trade, and then they go out into the world. And I'm not sure that there's any more specialized discipline in the world uh, that is such an abject failure as conflict resolution. Mm. And it has a lot of uh, sibling similarities to uh, a lot of counseling and psychotherapy approaches. And that belief, this kind of medical treatment sort of model, the faith in it is grounded in deep misunderstanding of the source of most of our problems. I think that I think the name conflict resolution is uh, is such a powerful misnomer. Uh, mm. it, it says that somehow people find themselves engaged in conflicts, that these conflicts can quote be resolved. And that's kind of a transactional, it already implies sort of a transactional approach. Mm-hmm. And that there's somebody who's mastered that the, uh, 
the processes for a resolution, how you how you meet across the table or how you find common ground or whatever. And, um, and it, 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 it pays no attention, whatever, as far as I can tell to the responsibility of the individuals who are conflicted, uh, with one another, uh, for the situation that they're in. And if they're not responsible for it, they can't do anything about it except, by agreeing to some sort of transactional solution that they can put on paper and sign and this part will be yours and this part will be mine and the potential contentiousness still exists uh they they may resent the fact that they sign the agreement at all more, more than likely they won't even get into it my little bit of uh it's not a professional but it's uh being associated with some professionals. Uh, my little bit of acquaintance with what is called conflict resolution would suggest that the people who've been most trusted to be help, helpful in international conflict resolution situations have c- kind of come into their a role by accident, by long-term friendships or gaining the trust of somebody. And, and uh, maybe they're Maybe their uh, circle of friends bridges the two conflicted parties. I, I, I think conflict resolution on on that scale is is incredibly difficult, and it is, uh, and 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 the conflicted parties prepare very carefully about how they're going to where and how they're going to meet one another and under what conditions and what assumptions. It's almost all contrived to prevent any concessions, whatever, any any substantial concessions, whatever, and they would be given grudgingly and only on a quid pro quo. I think the way to go after conflict resolution is an interpersonal um, way, and any any approaches are going to spin out of. Uh, understandings what and who human beings are, how they relate to one another, and in fact, even what reality is, because reality is nothing that that can possibly be represented in a symbol by, by means of a symbol set on a piece of paper or on with pictures or symbols of any kind. Reality is very rich and it's interpersonal and. Uh, uh, we have gifts of mutual understanding and collaboration and mutual support and caring and loyalty that can just can't be represented. One of the key problems with any, I'll use the word advisedly, any psychological understanding, be it theory or just offhanded impressions, um, depends upon uh, intellectual moves that are extra psychological. That is to say, if you're going to talk about the attitudes, emotions, desires, dispositions, uh, agency, et cetera, of human beings and how they interact with one another, you have to find what used to be called operational definitions 
of all those kinds of terms. For example, very simple example, if you want to find out about religiosity, you have to define it in some kind of observational terms. For instance, how often a person prays, how often a person uh, uh, attends to some kind of congregation of people of life, of people of a, of a similar faith, um, or you've got to find some way that you can observationally uh, cash in the notion. And that, that observation, that uh, operational definition, that defining something that can't be uh, 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 accessed otherwise in terms that are, that are observationally uh, grounded, uh, that move is by definition outside of the science, outside of the, of the, uh, uh, the skill set. And it's intuitive. And it can't be, and it can't be taught. It can sort of be picked up. People can copy one another, but but it has no substance. There's no, there's no conceivable argument ever for people to, to defend the idea that something attitudinal or relational consists in these things that we can observe. And there, there's a host <laughs> of, of arguments against that. And and generally speaking. When some genius comes along, like a Kierkegaard or a, an Emmanuel Levinas, and he or she puts their finger right on what it is and, and wrestles with how to say it so that people don't grab it and make it in for something else, uh, they tend to be, uh, they, they tend to, have, to uh, generate some kind of a flashpoint of illumination in the, in the world of people who talk about these things. And then they die because... Nobody knows how to make a professionalized uh, use of it that can generate power, fame, or money from uh, by it by means of it. You're entering into an area that is um, recondite, but also uh, the only the only fruitful way of talking about the subjects, and and you almost have to be embedded in that world, uh, the, the, the world of enhancing the, the productive relationships among human beings, you almost have to be deeply engaged in it in order to try to find some way which geniuses have not been successful at doing in the past. Uh, I know that I'm saying things that are hard to get, but I can give some examples. Uh, now, I, I will say, you know, I've read, of course, Bonds That Make Us Free, and I've read it, you know, when I say I've read it, I mean, I've read it and read it and read it and tried to break it down and tried to get to the pieces of it and tried, okay, well, then, and tried then, to then live you, it. Then, then you will know from that reading. You'll, you already know. Because I tried to write that book in a decidedly non-theoretical way. I, I came to all this by a theoretical route. Talk about that later. But yes. I wrote that book so in itself it could be an occasion for self-therapy because of the nature, the very nature of the kind of problems that I've been concerned about, the problems that have at their core some form of self-deception, 
puts the responsibility for those problems right upon the individual. I worked for a long time trying to solve a problem in philosophical psychology that I was aware had never been solved. And that is, how is it possible for people to to deceive themselves? Jean-Paul Sartre said, the only way it could happen, it appears. And this is what Sigmund Freud believed, was that people would have to know the truth very exactly in order to hide it hide it from themselves the more carefully <laughs> and uh, and so Freud was pressed to devise a theory of of the unconscious a theory uh, according to which there are things we know that we cannot talk to ourselves about because the unconscious is inaccessible to consciousness. Nevertheless, its ideation and energies drive our behavior. Mm-hmm. Sartre was one of the first to strike a blow against Freudianism, but it, it hasn't survived intellectually. It, it can't. It doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a construct that is, in principle, unverifiable. It's a way to try to in, invent a sort of homunculus and inaccessible to the individual or to anybody else that is at the root of our behavior. And but it for for generate for a generation or two it swept the Western world and uh, it's been left far behind and deservedly so. But uh, because it, the theory says in effect there are times and. There's a, there are a lot of people who have had this sort of an, an insight to this of this kind. There are occasions for every human being in which they encounter situations that call upon them in an imperative way to respond caringly or helpfully, and um, it's widely accepted that. We all go through life uh, interpreting our world through socially constructed mentalities, mindsets, if you will, uh, ways of looking at things, uh, categories and and concepts that uh, structure the world for us. If we didn't, we couldn't make any sense of it. And we get those from our, our society, from our culture as we grow up, their cultural, the way the culture impedes upon the individual and controls human behavior. And um, nevertheless, the gospel teaches us, and I believe that it's true, and there's a lot of sweet argument that this would have to be so. We do have times when the humanity of others falls upon our humanity, and, and that is an obligation to have that kind of intuition to see another being that way, maybe even an animal or some living thing, is is who we are. It can't be ignored. And we either yield to it, we, and in, in a gospel context, we yield to the light of Christ, or we refuse to. But we can't just let it alone and walk away as if it were a flavor of dessert that we didn't want to order at the 
uh, at the restaurant because we don't like the taste of those things. It's it it is it is binding upon us, and so we, we in a gospel context we couldn't be we couldn't be agents if we didn't have the opportunity the the possibility whenever it matters of choosing between good and evil, light and darkness. I do remember in Bonds that sentiment of being trapped by the uh, the story of well. Uh, either they are a monster or I am a monster, and and that's it. Once you're in that trap, it's all it's, it's like the devil can leave us alone because we're already trapped, we're already miserable. Because the yep, the yep, more the yep. more we push on that system, the more it will push back on us, and and this can go on, of course, for years or a lifetime. And and not only do I sort of understand it conceptually, right, that it, once you discover, oh, there is no monster, you know, I just a- acted in these ways and justify myself in these ways and have then gone on along with this story oh i can be liberated and i've experienced it and so so beyond the the the, the logic the, the logical alignment uh i have experienced some very profound moments of liberation independent of the other person i was once driving along on my own thinking through these ideas thinking about this relationship thinking about my own frustrations and hurt and I just started to just to weep, literally had to pull over from the road as it just sort of all came out of me after years and years. It's, it's been, it was long enough ago now that I don't really remember. I'd have to go back into my journals to remember what the thought was on that day that was so liberating, you know, in a precise way. I think, I mean, it was just coming to the truth of like who they are. Yes, I think it's coming back to me now. It was a sort of discovery of, of like, Look, that, that's just who they are, and it's okay for them to be that. You know, like it's it's me that wants them to be when I is my own father, and it's I, I want him to be a whole set of things, and I want him to to behave in a certain way, and it's like it's okay. It, it, it's me that's building all the expectation, and I, I could that it was like this alignment of just coming to the truth of like, look, this is just what it is. And it was extremely liberating and it changed the relationship without ever talking about it. And that, that's been repeated for me uh, with other family members where talking is just not an option or appears not to be, and yet the relationship could be transformed. I mean, that's shocking, really, that a relationship can in practice be different, be transformed without talking about it. <laughs> just by understanding what's really going on uh, within yourself, uh, one's own weaknesses, uh, and 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 then because you're different now within, you are going to come across differently in every interaction. You're able to, yeah. to, to to interact with the other person. I have actually experienced it, and and it does. I mean, I suppose it fits with what you said here. Is self-therapy. I mean, it's a good term, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've gone through therapy too in my life, and I, I think that it is a rich experience, but there is an error in all therapy, right? There is, let's say, a an embedded weakness in all therapy, even, even what I see as being, you know, I mean, the person I've gone to has spent years communicating, working with, I think is as good as they come. And the weakness is, they only ever have one side of the story. I mean, it's a pretty foundational problem to, you know, if you're yeah. not careful. 
I mean, I'm quite a persuasive person. And I sort of think, well, if you just listen to me for years about something, you really would probably think I was right or, you know, convinced by it. Anyway, I just have, I just keep in the back of my mind always thinking about that with therapy. It's like, well, you can't really overcome that. The model is, you know, one person advising one person. And so the risk, I think, of, of just believing the stories is, 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 is pretty major. Reinforcing the, the self-deception. <laughs> yes. Well, if you think about it even a little further, you realize that a self-deceiver is propagating his or her theory of why they're acting as they are by acting that way. Emotions are different from feelings. Emotions have a propositional content. Emotions are assertions of some kind or another. That uh, Feelings aren't. Feelings are just non-articulate. If I get angry with somebody, you are stepping out of your rightful role here, and I don't have to listen to you and i'm really perturbed we we assert something people who are in what i call collusion in that book um are all asserting a theory of behavior which has become widespread in the psychological world that is taken to be what human nature is that we do get on each other's nerves we can make people can make me angry people can discourage or or victimize me in a way that just deflates me and I can't work my way out of it. This theory is very widespread. Now, some Buddhists don't believe it, but they're in the minority. I'll just share one other thing with you. There are some very fundamental reasons why you can't develop a, a, a standard theory that enables some skilled people to manipulate other people successfully. And it is this. And this is an insight, a very powerful insight, of a Lithuanian Jew who became a naturalized French citizen and studied phenomenology. His name is Emmanuel Levinas. And he said two things that are very powerful here. There is a kind of encounter, one person with another, that is eye to eye, face to face. And it may not even engage people looking at each other's eyeballs or, or, or each other's faces, but it's directly it's second person encounter. And that encounter is received by me, is that encounter is made by me as an obligation or responsibility for the welfare of that other person to the extent that I can do that. The point is that any third person observation of that encounter will miss that. You can't push, you can't express the most fundamental second person soul to soul, eye to eye, uh, and the realities, the obligational realities that press, that presses upon us, which are, which realities are precious beyond imagination. You can't put that in any third person language, but all theories are expressed in third person languages. <laughs> That's why it's so powerful when one person honestly comes to understand the way you t- talked about who they are, what they've been, and and another hears that, that's a second-person encounter, and you can't mediate it. Uh, Levinas said something in another way in a, in, a, in a later book. He's very difficult to read, but the reason is he's trying to say something that won't get him into the third-person trap. <laughs> right. And, and, uh, and it's not easy. It's not easy. But anyway, he said... There's a world of difference between the saying and the said. 
When we are with another person, we respond to their saying. If somebody records what they what records their saying and transposes it into a said, it's different. You can't capture coyness, you can't capture irony, you can't capture all kinds of things, all kinds of dimensions of this rich, interactive, person-to-person, humanity-laden responses to one to another. Thank you, really. Thank you for listening. And I say thank you for other people who will have their relationship with you changed improved, even healed, because of the information and insight from Terry Warner. If you have found value in this episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. The first five people to write a review of this episode will receive a year-long access to the Essentialism Academy. That's a $300 value. Just send a photo of your review, along with your name and address, to info at Remember to subscribe to this podcast now so that you can receive the next episode. They come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays, so make that easy for yourself by subscribing. Finally, if you feel trapped in a relationship where you either think they are the monster or you are the monster, just pause to reflect on the revelation it is to discover that there is no monster. I look forward to continuing this conversation with Terry Warner and with you very soon. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.